0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. It's uh, I I want to try to describe the whole um, the whole Jewish outlook. So it's a, it's a, it's sort of like a it's, a it's an ambitious topic. But but uh, like how do you do it? How do you how do you describe the entire thing? But but we we'll, we we'll, we'll, we'll try our best. Um, what I specifically want to talk about is um, the notion of um, transcendence. Um, going beyond yourself, and understanding how this um, fits into the, the Jewish approach, and that this is contained very much in terms of the mitzvot and the performance of the mitzvot, and that it gets to a realm where you'll see a real contrast between Jewish wisdom, which we say, we say Torah Met, we say the Torah is the truth, where, where we look at our point of view versus, say, the more academic, or secular point of view, which um, will we'll, we'll approach this topic in a different way. And we'll have the ability to contrast these two worldviews in a way that I think that you'll see the depth of the Jewish approach and the truth of the Jewish approach. So, so all of this can be sort of narrowed down and we can zero in on an area in, um, in, in Jewish thought, in, in terms of the, the, the mitzvot, we know that there's 613 mitzvot, and they're categorized in three major different categories. One of the categories is called um, the chukim, or that would be, that's plural, or in, uh, the singular would be a chok. Uh, a chok is, is, is very, very intriguing, because it sort of gets to the heart of the difference of, of say, Torah versus, say, um, what we would call secular or academic wisdom. Because a chok defies logic. It defies simple rational explanations. A chok takes you to a place where you're told at the very outset of the discussion you're never fully going to understand this. And so in that way, a chok is actually very very challenging to the modern Western mind. And, surprisingly, Surprisingly, um, kashrus, keeping kosher, is actually a chok. And the reason why we say that this is surprising is because so much attention today is put um, in terms of understanding, really, um, the the greatness of, of, of nutrition and a balanced diet and things like this. And so it seems like the laws of keeping kosher are certainly an embodiment of that. In other words, they're coming from a very, very rational place. And yet the Torah is telling you that the laws of keeping kosher, for instance, for not eating pork, for instance, that these are coming from a place which is beyond, 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 that we'll never be able to understand. So very interesting. That's, 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 that's very surprising. That's very surprising. So in order to go further into this, we have to make the distinction <clears throat> between two words. And we'll begin to see the greatness of what a chok, what the chukim allow us to do in, in in what I think is just a very, very compelling, very, very inspiring, beautiful way. Um, for me, at least. You see, we have to understand that that all of humanity, as great as we are, the brain, as great as it is, is a creation. And that God is infinite. Meaning to say, there's an essential tension and a distinction that has to be made between the infinite and the finite. God, who is infinite, creates the finite. Like I remember when I would. When my kids were very small, I would explain to them, you know, because we would say Shema before they would go to bed, and sometimes we would discuss God, and, you know, they'd, they'd ask questions about God, and I'd say to them things like this, God doesn't have a body, God makes bodies, right? So, so, in other words, you have to understand that God is, God fills the entire world, but He exists beyond, beyond, dimensions beyond simultaneously. Um, what we call immanence and transcendence. Imminence means that God is utterly close to absolutely everything, that He saturates all of existence. When we say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad, that God is one, that means that the entire world exists within God. Right? When we say, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzfakot, Melokola Aratz that God's holiness fills the entire world. That means that every aspect, you you move your hand, you, you, you touch another thing, whether it's a table or a person, you look at the sky, everything is saturated with godliness. Right? So that's imminence. That's imminence. But at the same time, God exists beyond, 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 completely formless. Right? So both of these things happen at the same time. So you have the infinite presence of God, And then you have the creation of God, which is the finite. And we would fall into that category. And what's so surprising is that even the human mind, which can grasp so much, which is so great. Like they they talk about how much information the mind can store. They say it's buildings worth of books, right? I don't know if you've had this experience where you remember a name that you haven't thought of in 30, 40, 50 years, whatever it is, and then you remember something else that, sometimes I'll remember something from 40 years ago, from 15 years ago, from a couple of, like from yesterday, and I'll put those things together and arrive at a thought. And I'm I'm, I'm amazed, I'm amazed at the human mind, how it functions, it's the ultimate computer, the ultimate computer, and yet even that is finite. Even that's finite compared to God. As a good friend to me said a long time ago, and it really helped me in terms of my spiritual journey, he said to me, can an ant outthink a man? Right? No. So then he said, so then how can man outthink God? Right? So you have the concept of the infinite and then the finite. So the chukim, to return back to the chukim, these are the categories of halacha." of Jewish observance, that we're told there is no rational explanation for. So you say to me, if there's no rational explanation for it, then that means that these laws must be irrational, (laughs) right? And that's what the academic, that's what the professor might tell you. If there's no rational explanation, that means that they're irrational. But that's actually not the point of contrast at all. That would be the incorrect word. The proper word is super-rational, meaning to say that these laws go beyond, they're super-rational, they go beyond what the rational mind can comprehend. So again, the human mind, as great as it is, is ultimately finite, right? God is infinite. And so these laws allow you to reach to a place in the universe with all the worlds, all the spiritual worlds, all the dimensions. And remember, I think it's so important to say, it used to be when we thought of other worlds or the next world or whatever it is, that this this was purely the realm of religion and belief. And yet, mathematics today and quantum physics today talk about very clearly dimensions that exist that we can't see with our naked eye. So in other words, the idea that there are dimensions beyond what the eye can see is no longer the realm of religion anymore. It's all science now. But they're confirming and validating what it is that we've said from day one. So you can feel more comfortable in your belief that there are dimensions beyond you, bless you, that you can't see. Because all of this is now the realm of science. And remember, what is science? Science is just a description of what God is doing. Right? As, as I like to point out, if you want to approach the beginning of life from the Darwinian perspective, and you want to say that, that all of life begins with a single cell, the question then becomes, who made that cell? And who made the fabric of time and space that the cell exists in? And of you want to talk about the origin of the universe? By the way, the, the Jewish thought, Kabbalists knew about the Big Bang Theory. We call it something else, but from the beginning, where we say that God took a single point of creation, which interestingly was the foundation stone of the Besa Migdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. God took the, like the size of a mustard seed, a tiny point of matter, and then he expanded it out. Until he made the physical universe. That's the Big Bang. Right? So the question is, if you believe in the Big Bang, and certainly we say this is how God did it, the question is, where did that initial point of matter come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from? From which it was created. From which it existed in. So everything points to a creator. Everything points to God. So again, God is infinite. And we're a creation of God, which means we can never grasp. We can never grasp the entirety of creation. And you see this beautifully stated in a passage, in a verse from the Torah, where God says to Moshe, no one can see my face and live. So what does that mean? Because if you see God's face, in other words, if you see the world from God's point of view, you cease to exist because at that moment you become God. If you can see the entirety of creation as God can see the entire, uh, entirety of creation, at that point you're God. So no one can see God's face and live. Meaning to say that no one sees the entirety of all of creation except God himself. And it's instructive for us to understand that it says that even the angels ask, Where is the place of His glory? Meaning to say that the angels who are spiritual creatures who who dwell in dimensions beyond the physical, who have a radically higher, greater appreciation of godliness than we do, even they don't see the entirety of God. Even they ask, where is the place of His glory? So now let's return again back to the... to to what a chok is, right? These... These mitzvahs, which we're told there's no rational explanation for them because these go to the super rational place. These allow you, and these are the greatness of it. Now we can really make the point and really understand the fullness of it. What these categories of mitzvah allow a person to do is to reach beyond their own limitations to reach beyond where the rational mind can grasp, to go from where the ceiling of human intelligence stops you and to reach beyond to a place into the divine spheres. And now through the performance of the Chukim, which again are beyond rational thought, and allow you to reach realms beyond you, you're able to access higher light, the light from these exalted, ethereal realms, and to bring that light down into earth. Amazing opportunity. These are amazing passports that God allows us to do. Now, let's now contrast this point of view with what a, say, a college professor might say. So, to an academic, or to one with a more secular orientation, they'll say that the mind is the most exalted creation in, in existence. And if the mind doesn't understand it, then, then it's nonsense. And, and, or superstition. Or, or darkness. Or primitivism. They'll have many, many words, right, to describe what it is. But you see that, that ultimately, they're cutting themselves, this point of view, this approach to life, you're cutting yourself off from the entirety of creation, because it's starting with a premise which is incorrect. The premise is that the mind can grasp the totality of creation, the mind can't grasp the totality of creation. As God says, no one can see my face and limb. God is infinite, as great as human beings are. Ultimately, we're finite. Let me put it to you in the most simple, this most simple of imagery. Can the vastness of the ocean fit into a single cup of water? <laughs> can you fit the ocean into a cup? So how can the infinity of God fit into a single human mind? It's, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And now you're going to give me a way to go beyond, to touch everything, to touch the roots of all of existence? It's the, it's the most awesome thing in the world. The mitzvot are the most awesome thing in the world. Remember, it says something. Let's just talk about, again, transcendence. And now we're going to go into the letters, by the way. We're going to go into the letters, and we're going to go into the crowns of the letters, and we're going to see how this works on a whole other level. Okay? But I just want to make this, this uh, one introduction. There's something very... Um, Amazing, an amazing statement that the the Talmud makes. We talk about it all the time because it's, to me, it's so compelling. You know. The Talmud says something like, very radical. It says that the Torah existed, nine hundred and seventy four generations before the world was created. I say, wait, what? What are you talking about? You mean before there was time and space? There was a. Torah scroll floating up in the middle of like outer space. Like what are you talking about, you know? So clearly that's not it. Clearly it's not talking about that. So what does it mean that the Torah existed 974 generations before the world was created? Hey, okay, we won't get into the number the, n- the number itself is significant because just I'll just give you a little taste of what that number means. The Torah was actually given in the 26th generation after Adam Arisham, right? After the first person and so, so 974 plus 26 adds up to 1,000. And this gets into the thousandth generation of the Torah. And okay, this is a whole topic in and of itself. But just to tell you that this number 974 isn't this kind of crazy number. There's a, there's a whole system behind that number as well. Okay, But anyway, let's get, let's get to the idea of what is the Torah as it existed before the world was created? So, so, you know, we have, I have some visitors coming to us from out of town now, right? Some family from Mexico. So I was saying to my brother-in-law, I said, listen, you come to, you didn't just arrive with your family and all your suitcases to the airport and then say, okay, where should we go? <laughs> Right? No, no one does that. No one embarks on a project or a journey or a trip and then just says, Okay, what are we going to do here? You, you knew, you planned in advance what it is that you were going to do. Anyone who has a project or a plan or whatever it is, they have an idea before they begin what they're going to do. Right? And the more ambitious the project, the more the plan is in place. Okay. So the same thing with God. So before God created the world, he had a plan for the world. God's plan for the world before he made the world, this was the Torah before the world was created. This was God's plan for the world, right? And then now with this in mind, you can understand another deep teaching, which is that it says God looked into the Torah and then he created the world that the Torah is the blueprint of creation. So now you understand what that means. God had his plan for the world. He looked into his plan, so to speak, and then he created the world. But now it goes deeper. Now we get even deeper. God then took his thoughts for the world and he molded his thoughts for the world, his plan for the world, and out of that he made the world. So when we say that the entire world is made out of Torah, this is what it means. God made the world out of his plan for the world, which was the Torah before the world existed. So the whole world is made out of the Torah. Now, with this in mind, let's go back to what a chok is. What a chok allows you to do when you're doing a mitzvah, which is beyond the finite consciousness of a human being, beyond the cup of work, it allows you to reach all the way into the, I'm going to come up with a brand new word here, the outer sphere, <laughs> right, of creation. Like you're able to reach all the way to the roots of all of creation because the whole world, the whole universe, the whole cosmos is made out of the Torah. And when you're dealing with mitzvot, which is the, which is the currency that's the currency of the universe, you're able to go and 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 never stop. So, remember, one of the essential ingredients of the world itself is our soul. Our soul is a piece of God. And God himself fills the entire universe. So, another point of contrast between Jewish thought and secular thought is secular thought talks about The time-space continuum. All right? So that's one articulation of sort of like the vastness of reality. But Judaism from the time of the Sefer Yetzirah, right, which is going back to the very beginning, says there are three essential ingredients to creation. Time, space, all right? We had that way long ago. But they add a third ingredient, and salt. Because what is your soul? Your soul is a piece of God. Right? So your soul, which is an aspect of Hashem, right, is part of the essential composition of reality itself. So again, the Jewish point of view, it's so deep, and it's so all-encompassing about the true nature of reality itself. Remember, there's no... We don't say Judaism or Torah is a religion. We don't say that. We say, this is what it is. This is a description of what it is. This is reality. It's not a religion. A religion is like, okay, so I get bonus points for doing this. No, we're saying this is what it is. Okay. Now, I want to tell you a medrash. And again, this is going to set the stage for for a discussion of the crowns of the letters. But this medrash, again, will show you the far-reaching depths of the Torah itself. And the transcendence that a person can experience by studying Torah and doing mitzvah. So when, when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shemayim, went up to heaven to receive the Torah, the angels didn't want to give the Torah to, to Moshe. And because they felt like the Torah is too holy and human beings are going to desecrate it. So they thought it's, it's not right that the Torah should go down into earth. It's not right. So Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, debate the angels and and convince them to give the Torah to humanity. And I remember when I first learned that, I was so excited. I felt like this is going to be the greatest thing that I ever learned. Moshe debating the angels? This is fantastic, right? So I'm paraphrasing right now, but Moshe says to the angels, do you have parents that you need the mitzvah of honoring your parents? And the angels say, What? No! That, you yeah, no! You're, you, you know, and then he says, Do you work all week that you need a Shabbos to rest? And the angels are like, What? That's incredible! No! And I remember... When I saw Moshe's arguments, I could not have been more disappointed. (laughs) And I was simultaneously, like, I was like, anyone could have, like a fourth grader, really, could have come up with those arguments. Like, all he's doing is reading the Ten Commandments. Like, what, you know, what, what, and the angels are, like, blowing their minds over this, over these arguments. How could it be that they're so persuasive? And then I realized what's going on. It's a very deep thing that's going on in terms of why these arguments are so effective. They're so effective because the angels are studying the same Torah that we're studying. But they're studying it in the spiritual realms, which are totally spiritual. It's the same Torah. But imagine how they're learning the mitzvah of not working on Shabbos. And for them in their total spirituality to imagine a physical being who gets tired, who needs rest, this is an an, an amazing chiddish. It's a radical new thought for them because they're studying the Torah in these other dimensions where physicality is a complete novelty, total novelty. Okay. So now we get to the crowns of the letters. Now, Kabbalistically speaking, there are all sorts of paradigms, by the way, and, and you should know, I'm just going to give you a general um, point that uh, someone told me who is, you know, a, a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, and, um, and, and, it, and it helped me, and I, I, I refer to it all the time, and so you should just know this is just part of your basic education. Which is when you get into deep thought, deep Torah thought, um, you know whether it's you know Kabbalistic or Hasids or understanding the Midrashim, Makshava, whatever, the, whatever they want to call it, you have to understand that there are different paradigms, and, and the different paradigms are, are arranged to um, structure a point. And sometimes you'll hear a teaching that will sound like a mystical teaching that will be in contradiction to another thing that you learned. But if you're learning it from an authentic source, you just have to understand that there's no contradiction. You're just analyzing it from different paradigms. And once you understand that, then you'll stop asking what they call, well, you'll stop, ask, stop asking, you'll stop being bothered by things that aren't really problems. And you'll just understand that this is just a different paradigm, whatever it is, okay? Anyway, so one of the paradigms in terms of the organization of the cosmos, right, is the four worlds, all right? Now, the four worlds are not talking about four different planets or something like that. It's just talking about the oneness of all of creation. But what it does is it's, it, it talks, it, it's, it's divided into um, stratifications, okay? So the top world is called Atsilus right? And that's the ultimate spiritual realm. And then it gets compressed more. And then the world below that is, again, it's one, one continuum. We're talking about one universe. But each of the four worlds becomes more and more compressed, what we call Tzimtzum, until we get to the final world, which is this world called Olam also known as the world of action, which is why the performance of the mitzvot is so important. Because this is not the angelic world where you're just kind of thinking about stuff. This is the world of materiality where action itself is primary and of the utmost importance, right? And where the actions that you do in this world reverberate through the entire cosmos and affect all the spiritual worlds, positively or negatively, right? So finally, it comes down to materiality. So these are the four worlds, okay? Now listen to this. And I, I'll just give you one more introduction before we get to the Kranz. A favorite story of mine, when I went to, uh, I had been learning Torah already for, for a while, but, but there's a wonderful program called Israelite in, in, in the old city of Jerusalem, and it's, anyone can get a lot out of it, whatever your level is, but, but it's usually designed for as an introduction to Torah. So I went to the first class, the first day, in the old city in Jerusalem, and Rabbi David Aaron was teaching, and he's standing in front of a blackboard, and he says, okay, so what's the Torah? And someone raises their hand and says, a book of laws. And he says, very good. He writes on book of laws. And someone else raises their hand and says, a book of history. He goes, very good. He writes on book of history. And I raise my hand, he goes, go ahead. I said, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. And he says, "Okay, let's hold off on that for a second." <laughs> so again, 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 you see that the Torah itself is the infinite compressed into the finite. When we look at a chumash, when we look at a, a, what we, you know, what some people call the Bible, when we look into the Torah, the Torah is not a book. The Torah is not a scroll. The Torah is the entirety of the universe but it exists simultaneously in a book form, right? But that's the infinite compressed into the finite. You have to understand that every single letter of the Torah goes all the way up dimensions beyond our dimension, so much so that the angels can be learning the same Torah that we're learning, but where Moshe Rabbeinu can just read it the way we read it in our realm, and their minds are blown because they can't even imagine the implications of that right? Now, I want to show you how you see this in terms of the letters themselves. Now, the letters are very holy, right? And there are many halachas, many laws about how to write each of the letters. And one of the amazing things about the letters is the letters have what's called crowns on top of them. In Hebrew, we call them tagin. Okay, so that's plural. A, the singular would be a, t- excuse me, would be a tug. So, so, um, and there are there are different traditions, different ways um, of which letters receive which number of crowns. Okay, and then you have special instances where one letter might get more crowns, and then that's usually pointing you to the fact that there's something very special going on in terms of that word. And there are all these amazing hints and, you know, secret pathways and all the rest that, the, that, that are pointing you to where, like, the Torah is like has an unbelievable secret to be revealed and things like this. Now, while there are exceptions, the normal amount of crowns, the most amount of crowns that a letter can hold is three crowns. So, three crowns for a letter is, is, is the most. Again, there will be exceptions and things like this, but this is what we're going with. Three crowns, that's the, the, the normal amount. Now, it says, interestingly, that when, Hashem, when Moshe Rabenu was about to receive the Torah from Hashem, Moshe saw Hashem is busy with something. This is in the Talmud. Right? What's Hashem doing? Moshe saw Hashem is tying crowns to the letters. is that phenomenal? It's a phenomenal thing. It's a phenomenal thing. And Moshe says, what are these crowns? What, what are you doing? And Hashem explains to Moshe Rabbeinu that there's going to be someone who is going to learn all sorts of halachas based on the crowns of the letters themselves. Right and who is that, Rabbi Akiva? So Moshe wants to go. Now remember, Rabbi Akiva is not for a long time after Moshe Rabbeinu. So, so Moshe says, I wanna, I wanna see Rabbi Akiva teach. Right. So Moshe goes and he's now at the academy in the last row, which is in itself interesting because they would, they would put the best students in the first row. Second best students in the second row. So Moshe's standing in the back and he's watching Rabbi Akiva teach and Rabbi Akiva is explaining all these amazing, amazing Torahs based on the crowns of the letters and Moshe's getting depressed because Moshe says, I don't know any of this. <laughs> Why didn't you give the Torah to Rabbi Akiva? Now, then, then, um, then Rabbi Akiva says, and I learned all of this from Moshe. <laughs> and then Moshe gets happy again. And then the the medrash goes on in a in in a, in a wild place. But it's that would take up the entire time, so we can't even go into the part two of that of that of that teaching. But anyway, what what, what I would like to suggest from that, and what I think you you see in a very interesting way here, is that. Um, Even Moshe Rabbeinu, remember. So, okay, let's go a step at a time here. You see what it is? We said that there are four worlds, right? That's one of the organizing principles of understanding one paradigm in terms of understanding the totality of creation, the four worlds. So look at how each letter... The most crowns that a letter has is three crowns. So what is that? There's three crowns and then the letter. That's hinting at the four worlds. And the crowns on top of the letter are talking about how the Torah can be understood in different ways all through the four worlds. Do you see how that's working? How the crowns on top of the letters, each one represents a different world. And the bottom letter represents this world. That's four worlds. And so you see how the angels can be learning the same Torah. What do we say? That the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. You see how it starts with the letter, which is the finite. That's the revealed aspect. And then each letter is showing you how it climbs all the way with the various crowns on top of the letters, all the way to the other worlds. So that each letter, it's showing you how each letter is ascending all the way to the top of heaven. And how at every dimension in the heavenly realms, they're learning the same Torah. Is everyone here? So that, 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 just because we have to keep our sources straight, that's my explanation. Now, now Moshe Rabbeinu, didn't we say, how can you fit an ocean into a cup? The biggest cup that ever existed was Moshe Rabbeinu. But even Moshe Rabbeinu is a cup compared to Hashem. The crowns of the letters are representing those areas which are beyond the mind. So even here we see when Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, what are the crowns for? right? And I don't understand all these Torahs from the crowns. It's showing that even Moshe Rabbeinu, relative to Hashem, is finite relative to the infinite, which is very appropriate that the person who Hashem said, no one can see my face and live, he said that to Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, I was talking with someone who is a very intelligent guy, a young guy, and he said to me, we were talking about these ideas. He said to me, You mean that a person can never understand everything? And it, he was so, I, it was like if I had just <laughs> tapped him, he would have fallen over. <laughs> but, and, and I didn't appreciate to the extent to which. That is a very radical idea to many people. No, you can't understand everything. You will never understand everything. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, which is so amazing to me, is that, the, the, as the Ramban says in his introduction <coughs> to Kumish, the Torah is black fire on white fire. Black fire is those, as I understand it, black fire is those aspects of reality which are revealed. White fire are the spiritual realms that exist, but they that you can't see them with the naked eye. So, interestingly, everybody knows if a Torah scroll is missing one word, it's not kosher. If it's missing one letter, it's not kosher. If it's missing the crowns of the letters, can't be missing a part of a letter. But, A halacha, which is not as well known relating to this, is that if two letters are touching each other, it's also not kosher. Why? Because the white fire is absent. In other words, it's not just that you need all the black fire, like the letters and the words and the complete words, but you also need the white fire in order for the Torah to be kosher. In other words, the white fire represents that which is unknown, And we're saying that the Torah is the blueprint of reality. Meaning to say that part of our reality which is absolutely mandated is the unknown. We exist within the unknown. And that's not a failure of human consciousness. That's the reality of the world. There is the known and the unknown and both are necessary ingredients to this world and to your life and to your tikkun. And when you experience the unknown, that's not the absence of God. That's the presence of the infinite. That's the presence of the infinite in your life. And you go, I don't know. Of course you don't know. Because God is infinite. But that's the presence of God right there. That's the presence of the infinite right there. That's not the absence and abandonment. That's the presence of the unknown. Each Jew is compared to a letter of the Torah. And it says for Torah scroll to be kosher, it has to be surrounded by the white fire. Every single one of us is surrounded by the white fire. We're surrounded by God. But when you're surrounded by the infinite, you're also simultaneously surrounded by the unknown. But that's not the absence of God. That's the presence of the infinite. That's God in your life. You're standing in front of the infinite one at all times at all times. So now I want to go deeper into the crowns of the letters, right? Because the crowns of the letters are showing you that network through which the finite scales up to the infinite. Now listen to this. Of the letters that have crowns to them, right? That have three crowns, which is the most crowns, right? There are 7 letters in the olive base that have that have 3 crowns each to them. Now you say okay so we keep on using this word crown like what do you mean a crown is it like a like a little what is it what are you talking about So if you look it's actually the letter zion and a zion is if you if you are not familiar with it you can google zion but it's it's a straight line um, up and down, and then you have a diagonal little like roof to it at the top. <coughs> That's a Zion. OK. So 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 we said that there's seven, there's seven letters in the olive base, which are blessed, so to speak, with three crowns each, right? That's the most crowns. And that the crown itself is the letter Zion. So, so Zion, we see, is sort of like if you need to distill, if you want to talk about crowns and you want to get to the, the bottom line, the, the ultimate distillation of crowns, we're talking about really the letter Zion. And Zion, by the way, is one of those letters that takes three crowns. Okay? So now let's zero in on the letter Zion, and you'll see something amazing. You'll see something absolutely amazing, I think okay? Which is, Zion is the number seven. Okay? So we talked about, and the Zion has three crowns on top of it. Now, we talked about different paradigms in terms of understanding um, the map of the cosmos. We talked about the four worlds, right? How each letter, right, with three crowns, that encompasses four worlds, the three crowns plus the letter, that's four worlds, and how we see the reach of the Torah all the way up, right? Now we're going to look at it from a different paradigm. You have the letter Zion, that's seven, and then three crowns on top of the letter Zion. So one of the organizational principles of the universe is the ten spherot, and the ten spherot are divided into the lower seven, which is the letter Zion, and then the three above, which are the three crowns on top of the letter Zion. So here we see in the letter Zion, you have a model of the ten sphere up. And we talk about how the lower seven, which is Chesed, Gevurah, Teferit, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malchus, That's the lower seven, right? So these are the ones that are more revealed, and then we talk about the three higher spherot, which is hachma Binan and das, or keter Hachman and bina, depending how you want to phrase it. But it's the three above, which are totally exalted. So look how beautifully that fits into what we're saying about the Torah itself. How it's the infinite compressed into the finite. How the reach of the Torah, the letters go all the way up to Shemayim how you have the Zion, the letter Zion, which are the seven spheroid below, and then the three crowns, which are getting you to the top, 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 top places in heaven, right, which is a transcendent, which is beyond the top of the letter, which is your ability to go to the super rational place, to those places which are beyond. So, just uh it, just a quick one-line explanation of the Svirot, if you're not familiar with what that is. So we say that God took an aspect of His light, right? This is a, again another paradigm. We talked about the the um, the Torah before the world was created, God's plan for the world, that energy. Now we're going to talk about that plan for the world before the Torah was created. Now we're going to describe it in terms of light. How it was? It like that 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 was His outer garment of light, so to speak. Again. Kaviyokel, Hashem doesn't have any physicality to it to him, but but God took his outer light and and, and and formed it into the physical universe. And that there were different ingredients, different ingredients to the light, if you will, different aspects to the light that had different qualities to them. So if we isolate these qualities of this light, these each one of the isolated qualities would be a different sphera. Right? So this is kindness. This is one of the aspects of it. This is gvura. This is more structure. That's another aspect to it. And God combined all these things to create the physical universe. So these are the sphira. Okay. So now I want to take it to a, a deeper level. And this is like, to me, this is kind of a, a mind-blower. So, so one of the things that we should understand is when you have the ten sphera, each of the ten spherone, Contain all the other spheroid. Okay? Just like each of the four worlds contain all the other worlds. Meaning to say that you have levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and levels. And even within something, you have levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and levels and levels. Okay? You know, another word that we use when describing the heavens is olomos right? This means worlds. These, again, but we're talking about stratifications of light, right? And it gets more and more exalted. Okay. So understanding that each of the 10 spheroid contain all the other spheroid, and then each one of those within the spheroid contain all this other spheroid, right? Okay. With that model in place, listen to this. So you have the letter Zion, and then you have the three Zions on top of the Zion, the three crowns on top of the Zion, right? But then, if we had a spiritual microscope, we could zoom in to the Zion, one of the Zions on top of the Zion, and we'll see three more Zions. (laughs) So the crown, the Zion, which is serving as the crown on top of the Zion, that Zion has three Zions. Meaning to say that that when you get to the upper world, that upper world has a world above it as well. And then if you look at the Zion on top of the Zion, with your spiritual microscope, you'll see three more Zions. (laughs) So we have this structure where, what relatively speaking, depending on how you wanna look at it and approach it, What manifests itself as a higher world, it is a higher world, but then, to the world above it, it's the lower world. And on and on and on and on. And remember, each time you're zeroing in on a Zion, there are two more Zions. So there becomes this infinite web, right, connecting you from this world, (coughs) this infinite web, all the way throughout all the worlds, all the worlds. And we impact all of that. Now we talked about a chok. and we said, we mentioned at the beginning that that a hoke includes keeping kosher. That keeping kosher is, you know, this is um, that, that, that this is surprising because it seems so rationally based, so nutrition oriented. And yet, we're told from the Torah perspective that, in fact, that a, a hope reaches, reaches beyond you, that there is no explanation for keeping kosher. Um, interestingly, um, if, you, if you look, I, so I, I just want to, again, make a, a little um, just uh, contrast to show you, again, the depth of the Torah Perspective, and, and and to just introduce another concept, and just to show you where 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 the Torah understanding um, uh, exists relative to this other understanding. So in Reform Judaism, they they give an explanation for um, not keeping and uh, not eating pork, and I think again it's it's just instructive to 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 understand these two ideas next to each other. What they'll say is that the, the Jews are very smart. They knew way back in history that there was something called trigonosis, which is a disease that, in fact, that you do get from, from pigs. This is real. And that we had the prohibition from eating pork because we didn't want to get trigonosis. But that today there is no trigonosis. So since we see that it's no longer necessary to avoid pork, to avoid trigonosis, so then you can eat pork today. So again, the the Torah perspective on this is that there is no explanation, actually. It's not coming from a historical place at all. That there is no explanation for why you do it. But it allows you actually to reach to this exalted place. And, importantly, it also says in the Torah itself, you can't add or subtract from the mitzvahs. So when God gives us a mitzvah, it's for all times. So it's not really contingent on, on contemporary society or the contemporary understanding at all. These are the eternal foundational aspects of reality itself. So again, just as a, a point of contrast, it's, it's, I think, important to, to know the difference. Um, so, so I want to say now one more thing, just to go maybe even to a deeper place, and we'll start to finish it up. So again, the essential letter is Zion, Zion. Because the, when we're talking about the infinite compressed into the finite, when we're talking about this, the path of these realms, right? We know that, that there are three crowns on a letter, right? And, and, and then you have the letter below. So if we take the letter Zion, you see something I think interesting. I'd I just like to share this, and it's based on a teaching that I learned from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaber. I'll get to him in a moment, but the segue is mine. So you see that, again, you have the four worlds, and the letter plus the three crowns encompasses the four worlds, and that is showing how the Torah that we're learning goes all the way up into the heavens, and the angels are learning the same Torah that we are on completely different levels. So if you take Zion, which is seven, and you multiply it by four, because you have the four worlds, right? The Zion itself plus the three Zions on top of it. 7 times 4 is 28. 28 is a very interesting number in Torah because there are 14 bones in each one of your hands. Okay? And so when you put your two hands together, this is where, um, this is one of the ideas that Rebbe Nachman talks about in terms of clapping. Right? That you're putting them together, that makes 28, which is strength. Right? Kayach is 28. But um, but anyway, you see here that that seven times four is twenty-eight, which are the two hands. So again, why are we just to clarify the math so no one gets lost? We're talking about how the Torah encompasses all of reality. That it's it's what's revealed in this world plus all the other worlds. And since, since the crowns are made out of the letter zion, they're each zions, so if you take the letter zion plus the three zions on top, which is, again, the lower seven midos, the lower seven sphero, and the top three sphero, the 10 sphero, right? If you take that, if you've got four zions, that's four times seven, which is 28. 28 are the two hands because there's 14 bones in each hand, right? And that's not, I'm not talking just because I opened up Scientific American and oh, there's 14 bones in each hand. The Kabbalists have been talking about the 14 bones in each hand for, for forever. Okay? This is ancient Jewish methodology that we're talking about. So it says that God created, listen very carefully now, I'm segueing into Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Khabar. It says God created the worlds with both of his hands. He created the heavens with one hand and the earth with another hand. And that's why we who are created in the image of God who has no body, we who are created in the image of God also have two hands. Because through our actions in this world, through our Torah study and through our mitzvot, we are creating the heavens and the earth. And you see that reflected in the Torah itself with the crowns of the letters which allow us to access this dimension of reality and transcend to the upper reaches of heaven beyond the rational mind to where the mind can't even reach into the infinity of God. And now I want to just conclude with a teaching from Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haber. He says, when we make Kiddush, Kiddush is the seventh day, Zion, right? It's the seventh day. And when we make Kiddush Friday night, which is talking about the completion of the world, because what's the Messianic era called also? The day that will be all Shabbos. Shabbos is the seventh day. Yom Shekul Shabbos. That's, That's the Messianic period, the era of perfection. So when the reality evolves to this level of seven, which is the Shabbos, which is the era of perfection, Right? That's the completion of creation. So Friday night, we make Kiddush. Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver points out, we say the phrase, Yom HaShvi, the seventh day, three times in Kiddush. And he says this correlates with the three crowns on top of the letters. Right? On top of the letter, like Zion, which are the ten sphera, So what you're doing when you're making Kiddush Friday night is you're activating those crowns on the letters. You're you're accessing this realm of hachma, bina, and das. this realm, this highest heavenly realm, and you're bringing down light from the highest sphere from the highest levels of light down into this world in order to complete creation. So it's a very exalted kavanah that you can have when you make Kiddush Friday night, that each Yom HaShvi'i, you're imagining each one of the crowns on the letters, right? That you're getting to that place of light and bringing it down into this world. Unbelievable. But that's what we're doing with everything that we do. Every mitzvah, every expression of love, every word of Torah. Remember, the Vilna Gon says something amazing, amazing. He says that, that when you learn Torah, every word of Torah that you say, is a separate mitzvah of learning Torah. Do you know how, much, how many mitzvahs we all got just now? Each word was a separate mitzvah of learning Torah, and learning Torah is equal to all 613 mitzvah. <clears throat> so we should all feel very good right now, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> we should all understand that we're transacting things absolutely beyond ourselves. It's an amazing privilege to be alive. It's an amazing privilege to be in this world. Remember, no one told God to make the world. The world absolutely doesn't have to exist at all. And yet here we find ourselves in this unbelievable project called reality. And God gave us things to do to accomplish and to be partners with him in terms of bringing down the higher light and the ultimate perfection in this world. So we should be blessed, and we should feel strong, and we should go out and just do, 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 do. Amen. Here are some questions and answers. Say it again. The gematria of Yad is fourteen. Is Yad? Yeah, you're right. You're right. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, very, very good point. Very good point. Yeah, yeah. Yad, which is hand, is also fourteen. Yeah. So, yeah. You mentioned the Big Bang theory. What are your thoughts about um, evolution? And, and at first there was an amoeba, a one-celled amoeba that <laughs> turned yes. into an amphibian and a frog that yes. crawled out of the water right. and became a reptile, which became a primate, right, and, and became us. So my opinion is that um, God can do anything that he wants to do. If God wants to create the world that way, fine. If he wants to create it by... In other words... In order for God to do that, first He has to create time and space and a, a stable structure, right? Like when we talk about evolution, why doesn't or randomness? Let's say, if the world is really random, then why why um, why doesn't this book turn into a frog, right? Or why why don't I turn into a an unrecognizable mass of something? Like like when we talk about how the world got formed. Right why did it stop here all of a sudden? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like why did it stop at this stage of total recognizable things and not go then to the next stage and to the next stage and to the next stage, you know? Now um my my roommate at Harvard is a is a full professor at Harvard. It's a big deal. And his field is evolutionary biology. Hmm. And and he one of his um things that he's shown is that evolution can take place over You know, from his understanding, over, we say, tens of thousands or millions or, I don't even know, billions of years. I don't know how long they they say for things, right? But also there's rapid evolution. Like, he was studying the length of the legs on lizards in, like, Madagascar. And showing how, depending on how the um, landscape changed, in a few generations of lizards, you'd have longer legs or shorter legs. Right? So, so the body adapts to its circumstances, right? So God can create the world any way he wants to. So, so we, we know that, that um, if, if you look at the beginning of of of, Brachis, of, of Genesis, there's really just a, a, a paucity, just a, a few verses which is, are describing all of the creation of every aspect of reality. You've got all of chemistry, all of biology, all of astrophysics, all of all of math, all of absolutely meteorology. You've got you've got all of everything described in a, a cup, a few pages. I mean, in order to approach that from a from a more uh, a more thorough standpoint, you would need libraries and buildings worth of books to describe it. So to, to so to to start with the premise that what God was doing was giving an absolutely comprehensive explanation of all of creation, is that's, that's that's sophomoric. That's sophomoric to think that that was God's intention in terms of the opening verses of the Torah. So everything is what we call on the level of sod. Sod means the deeper, it's just hinting, it's just hinting at various things. Hinting at the structure of things. Hint, being phrased in a way that the human mind can wrap its mind around. But to, to approach it as, a, um, as an exhaustive explanation and then to say, oh, modern science says this and it's not in your opening verses of your Torah. Therefore, the, ah, the Torah is some primitive... But that's... that's You're primitive. You know, not you, but... <laughs> the person who says that is primitive because they don't have the basic understanding of what the Torah is trying to accomplish. You know, they say, can you imagine you go up to the Mona Lisa in the Louvre and you've got your laundry bag and you're stuffing your underwear and your socks into the painting and say, ha, what a ridiculous thing. It doesn't wash my clothes. (laughs) (laughs) People think this is so great. My underwear is equally dirty. Before, why did I even bother coming to the Louvre? (laughs) <laughs> oh, the Louvre is so great there's not there's not that basic understanding of, 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 of what of what is being transacted here right so so God can do whatever he wants to do if he wants to create the world through the 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 methodology that Darwin explained so that's that's up to God and then and then Darwin you know you know, to his great credit, discovered the methodology of God. But, but you know, it's like, you know, sometimes people um, m- m- misuse two words, to, to, to discover and to invent, right? If, if something is already there, you, you're discovering it. You're not inventing it. So, if, if, the, if, if that pattern was already in the world, and then it was there, you it, it already existed. You just recognized what already existed, right? So, but I think, just to, just to add one more point, people make a big mistake. Not only do they misunderstand what the purpose of the Torah is, and especially the opening verses of the Torah, but... They get they get lost in, in 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 down a particular road, which is the question isn't how God created human beings. The question is why God created human beings. See, however you came to be, whether you were created outright, which clearly God, who can do anything, who's created everything, could have just created you outright the way you are right now. He didn't need to make a In fact, if you think about it, it's even more a demonstration. Darwin, if you want to take his account literally, it's even more a a testimony to the greatness of God. Because before he made you, he made, what, 10, 15, 20, whatever it is, amazing independent species. (laughs) That's That's actually even a demonstration of greater creativity and greater power. That he could transform a frog into a human? That's even greater than just creating a human. Right? So, so really, if you think about it on that level, but, but, but the question is, why did God create you? Either way, you exist right now. you got to pay your rent. you got to get through the day. Either way, you're here right now. Now what? Right? Look forward. Now what? Why are you here? Why is there a world? That, these are the real questions. Okay, now, of course, I, I don't mean to discount the importance of studying the other stuff. You can also st- learn whatever you like. But the question is not how, ultimately, it's why. And that's what the Torah is here to open our minds to and open our lives to. One point you made that if you can, like, elaborate on it. So, when you were talking about, like, how Hashem, like, looked look into the Torah and then made the yeah. we are talking about how he took his mind and he formed the, the world through... I got lost there. Okay, so, so the idea is like this. God had a plan for the world before he created the world. When you think of the plan, you have to understand that... Think of it in terms of energy, or as it's described in other places, as light. Right? That's the plan for the world before it existed. So it, 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 it's actually something at that moment. It's not nothing. It's not just... Like, when you have a thought, it seems like it's invisible. But when God had His plan, then that, there was something there at that moment, right? There was this thought process, or, or His outer light. There was some energy, you know? And then He formed that into the world. Okay? okay? Yeah. So when we say that, that the world is made out of the Hebrew letters... Like, each of the letters is like, you can think of it in a different, in terms of physics, as like a different energy wavelength. And that's already getting into the notion of the sphere own, that each one is like a different energy. Right? And he formed that into the world itself. So much so that, that some people will tell you that we don't have the mitzvah of tefillin because we have an arm. We have an arm in order to do the mitzvah of tefillin. In other words, that the, that the mitzvot themselves are the building block of creation and then human beings were formed in order to fit like a hand into a glove into this structure that was created. So you can do different things with cause and effect, but, but, but to understand that the world and the Torah and the letters are, the, this is all one. In our discussion, so are the numbers also energy levels? Yeah. Well, these are all paradigms. These are all different organizational principles in order for you to be able to wrap your mind around big ideas. Yeah. Um, do human beings or the human race evolve spiritually, like the biological world evolves in a Darwinian sense? Like you made an example of your roommate who studies know, salamanders and growing longer legs. Yeah. In the, in his environment yeah um, or are we already complete completed spiritually okay so so one of the things that I, I talk about a lot it's to me it's it's a very important idea is that it says God is going to circumcise our hearts and very interestingly that mitzvah is given two different ways in the Torah. one is God commands us to circumcise our hearts. And then it says later on, God is going to circumcise your heart. So, what, what, what is that? You see, in terms of how I read the Ramban anyway, um, uh, one of the essential shifts that took place when we ate from the tree of knowledge is that the mind and the heart became separated. We see that this is really the, really, which is at the core of the problem of the human condition, is that the mind and the heart are separate. And so, so you have to fuse them back together again. There's a barrier on top of the heart, which is a separation between the mind and the heart. This is what we call the orla on the heart. This is what needs to be circumcised. In other words, there's this fatty layer on top of the heart that men and women both have, and it has to be removed. It has to be, we use the word circumcised, right? It has to be removed. And we talk about the uh, evolution of consciousness. There's going to be... A time when the mind is going to be able to grasp so much more, so much more, and and to my understanding, this is linked to the circum to the circumcision of the heart. When we remove this layer from the heart, which is going to happen, which is, which is the next stage in terms of the evolution of human beings, right? So much is going to become revealed. Now, a lot of that we're sitting on right now. So we have all the wiring and all of the mechanism for that right now. But it's going to be lifted from us to reveal what's already there. Okay? So, for instance, the central nervous system, we say, okay, we need it to make our bodies work. But Rabbi Ari Kaplan points out that, that one of the main purposes of it is actually to stop sensory information from coming into a person. So the example that's given is that if you, say you live in New York or whatever it is, if you remembered clearly every single face that you saw on the subway and every single face that you saw when you walked down the street, over time, your mind would, you would go insane. You would go insane with all of that sensory bombardment. And so part of our shell, the shell of our physicality and our humanity is actually to shield us from information. So in other words, that shield will be taken off when we're ready. And then we'll be able to, again, using your language, evolve to the next stage of humanity. But we have that already there, right? The blinders will be taken off. Yeah.